Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at South London. And we are in the midst of going through the book of Acts, looking at the history of the early church. And today, we've got our PowerPoint back, or should I say keynote for those who are Apple enthusiasts. Um, <laughs> our topic today is responding to church growth. Responding to church growth, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, and I'm going to begin to start reading in verse 1 through to verse 7. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. We are approximately one-fifth of the way through this factual historical book. We have for a number of weeks looked at the interface between the faithful apostles and the unfaithful religious leaders. One group keep persecuting, the other group keep preaching, particularly Peter. One group are humble and faithful to God, the other group are hypocritical snakes and reptilian sneaks, who in the main want to get rid of these new leaders of this new movement. Yet, this community continues against all the odds to thrive. And we saw last week, one of the things that contributed to infuriating the religious leaders. And it was the popularity and the growth of this new movement. Addition and mad multiplication. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, now in, in those days, or at that time, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, what we see um, taking place in the previous chapters of Acts, then on into and beyond chapter 6, is the rapid growth of the church. Rapid church growth. <laughs> I remember there's an advert, this Jamaican advert that I saw. And I can't remember, I think they were advertising, you know, like Mr. Muscle or something like that. And um, it worked so quickly, they said in the advert, me not say fast, you know, me say rapid. <laughs> the church was growing at a, a rate that was just exponential. And along with the excitement of new people and large numbers, you see I'm practicing my Jamaican accent, 
along with the excitement of new people and large numbers, there are not only enemies like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which we've already, which we've already seen. It's not just enemies that are attacking from without, but there are also subtle enemies that lie within and can attack and disable internally. Like the horse of Troy. When you have this type of dramatic growth, and we are talking about numbers in excess of 10 to 15,000 people. When you have this type of dramatic growth, with such large amounts of people who need to be instructed, attended to, and cared for, logistically, this has the potential to become an organizational nightmare. Sometimes it's easier to stay small. Notice I didn't say better, I said easier to stay small. And if anything, the impression you get is that God likes big. <laughs> I mean, God creates a, a planet and it's big. He creates a universe and it's, it's so big that we can't fathom the size of the universe. I think some of you might have remembered when I showed some slides with regard to just the, the galaxy. And that's just our galaxy, the one we live in. Our galaxy is is one gal galaxy among millions of galaxies. And ours is tiny in comparison to like the Sombrero Galaxy. Do you know from one light year is from here to the moon 23 million times. If I said, on your march, you could say, go! And you, and you went to the moon at light speed, you'd be able to travel back and forth 23 million times. That's how far you travel in a year at the speed of light. One light year. The Sombrero Galaxy is 500,000 light years in diameter. It has 50,000 suns. That's just one galaxy. God likes big. Not that he doesn't appreciate small, but God likes big. Because he is big. And he is the one ultimately responsible for the adding to the church numerically. How often? Daily, the scripture says, individuals were added to the church. God endorses big. But God is also big on order and organization and structure. And this is what we're going to see today. With any, any great crop, any great yield, any great harvest or growth, there are also great challenges. And potential weaknesses become apparent. Believers are always guilty of saying, you probably heard it, that we need to go back to the early church. Meaning, we need to go back to miracles, fire falling from heaven, buildings shaking, appearances of angels. Like, we need to take it back to the early church. We need to be more like they were. And I say amen. Comma. And they're speaking about experience, all of the quote-unquote powerful stuff. But these same modern-day believers tend to neglect the other associated stuff. The other, the other issues that are associated with the power, as it were. How about the suicide of Judas? How do you deal with a suicide? How do you deal with the denial of Peter if you're Peter? I kind of know a little bit how we felt maybe a couple of weeks ago when I put my foot in my mouth, remember? How about in chapter 1, having to choose one disciple over the other? How do you say, ah, oh, we've got to choose a disciple every day? But in choosing one, you reject the other. How do you deal with that brother who's now been rejected? How about 
ridicule and mocking in chapter 2. The whole crowd looking at you as a disciple and say you're drunk. Tutu, somebody could have heard that on their way out of Jerusalem and never heard your response, Peter's response. No, we're not drunk as it may seem. They never heard that part. They heard, oh, you men are drunk as they walk out and they go to the next town. They say, you know, you know them apostles? Yeah, 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 them ones in Jerusalem. You know them guys are alcoholics. <laughs> Ridicule and mocking. How about being persecuted and threatened and thrown into jail in chapter 4? Chapter 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira killed, dead, like Demestos. Killed for lying and breaking the ninth commandment. And last week we saw the apostles arrested and beaten. In that sense, are we quick to say, yeah, let's go back to the early church? Well, yes and no. We just need to appreciate that it's far from mountaintop to mountaintop type experience, right? It's mountaintop sometimes, but then down to valley. And then you stay in the valley. And then you don't go back up to the mountain. You go down to the underworld. And then from the underworld, you go down to the deepest, darkest regions of the neverworld. And then maybe you might come back up and hit the surface and go back, hit the surface and then go up to another mountaintop experience. It's, it's up and down, isn't it? <clears throat> there are great and wonderful things to appreciate, but there is also the difficult and the dangerous. And here in chapter 6, we find the church confronted with yet another challenging circumstance and as great as expansion may be, it's not, without its, it's not without its anxieties. How many of you know that, that, that growth demands what? Growth demands change. A new married couple just get married, been together for six months. They go out two, three times a week. <laughs> can afford to eat out because they have excess funds minimal responsibilities come home and they just fall and flop into bed oh the delights of unbroken sleep <laughs> then you have a baby Things will never be the same again. At least not for another 18 years, right, or so. <laughs> um, Neil and Camille, yesterday, they were around by, by my house. And as they came in, my daughter was leaving with two of her friends, Beatrice and, um, I forget who the other, I think it was D. And they were leaving as these guys were coming in. And they were all dressed up. They were going to this church event somewhere in Crystal Palace. I said, as Neil and Camille are coming in with their two little ones, my big one's leaving. And they're like, oh, look how big your daughter's getting. Man, you know, how do you feel about it? I'll be like, I'm over the moon. I can't wait until she leaves home. So that I can go back to enjoying those days. <laughs> See, <clears throat> we had to change. Why? Because as our family increased, as our family grew, we needed to change. Things needed to change. Growth demands change. Verse 1 says, there arose a complaint. There it is. In the midst of the celebration, it's like, Houston, we got a problem. I must stop trying to do them accents. <laughs> Houston, we got a problem. And the problem is the Hellenists who have taken issue against the Hebrews. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that it's not surprising that those from Hades, the Hellenists, the group from Gehenna, you might think, because they're Hellenists. The first century neighbors from hell, 
They're, they're causing problems. No, that's, that's not what this word Hellenist actually means. Right? You think, oh, my neighbor, my work colleague, my car from hell. We've got drama coming to our lives all the time, right? Well, this is not technically a group from hell. The Hellenists, well, the word or the name, it doesn't have the type of connotation that I just described. These Hellenists in the first instance are Jews. They're Jews. And as a matter of fact, so are the other group. Who are who? The Hebrews. Both groups are Jewish. Both groups are Christians. The difference between the two being that one group was raised in a different culture. The Hellenistic Jews, who were Jews, were born and raised outside of Israel. In what is called a Hellenistic or a Grecian or Greek culture. You know, at this time, the Romans are ruling. They've conquered the known world at this time, having conquered the Greeks, right? But before, when the Greeks were in power, they proliferated throughout the whole known world at the time, at least the, the part of the world that they conquered. The whole world, world was permeated with Greek culture. It was permeated with Greek art, Greek music, and Greek influence. And they called this, this whole infiltration of this Greek culture, the Hellenistic era. These Jews had spent most of their lives as part of the diaspora, or the dispersed Jews. A little bit like my parents when they came over here to the UK in the 50s. They were born in Jamaica, but they left Jamaica and came to the UK. And after coming to the UK, they still used to cook Yaman green banana, right? But they started to eat fish and chips. They still maintained some of their West Indian culture, but they began to take on the different aspects of British culture. To the point where when they went back to Jamaica, Jamaicans looked at them as quote-unquote foreigners, calling them English. Now, they were Jamaican, but there was a difference because now they'd been culturally affected by their new diaspora. These were living outside of their original traditional environment. These are Jews who have been educated in Gentile schools and in a society dominated by Grecian influence and probably spoke Greek now as opposed to Aramaic, who read the scriptures but probably in Greek, like the Septuagint, as opposed to in Hebrew. Completely Jewish, biologically and ancestrally, but steeped in the customs and of the heathens and Gentiles. Now the Hebrew Jews, on the other hand, were born and raised in Israel. They spoke Aramaic predominantly. They were very proud of the fact that they lived and grew up in Israel. Therefore, there was a tendency for the Hebrew Jew to look down on the Hellenistic Jew as an inferior kind of Jew. The Hellenists were seen as second-class Israelites. That is by the Hebrew Jews. And there was a real social, cultural prejudice. Check it. Issues between believers. Now, because both groups were Christians, the tension was relieved it was minimized, but not completely eradicated. Hence, some of the Hellenists being possibly purposely neglected 
Could it be that believers were now being tempted to act like unbelievers? Which ultimately would threaten to destroy the unity of the early church. And this could be far more damaging than widows not being taken care of. The Hellenists could have begun to dislike and even hold hatred toward the Hebrew brothers and sisters that they were sitting down in church with. Which could easily begin to create an underlying distrust and other sins like complaining and murmuring, holding of grudges, Dissension destroys testimony. These people don't love each other. It could be said by outsiders and onlookers. And can you see how the enemy would use such an opportunity to split the church in two? With the aim to divide and conquer. In the book of Acts... Satan's attacks on the church have come on many different fronts, if you've been with us as we've been journeying through. For the most part, Hebrews tended to regard Hellenists as unspiritual compromisers with Greek culture. And Hellenists regarded Hebrews as holier-than-thou traditionalists. There was already a natural suspicion between the two groups and Satan tried to take advantage of that standing suspicion. When you don't understand someone, it's easy to be prejudiced. Now these were only two groups. Imagine amongst us. Where we got a multiplicity of groups. The enemy would like to use this in order to take advantage of us. Anyway, it says, because of this issue, their widows, that is the Hellenists, were being neglected. Neglected in this daily distribution. Can you hear them pleading on the widow's behalf? It says their widows were being neglected. What's going on? We're all supposed to be believers, right? We're all supposed to be Christians. We're all supposed to be family. How comes this group over here are being neglected? What is that all about? Now, it could have been a genuine answer. It could have been asked with a piercing you know what, I need an answer to this question, fam. I mean, I'm serious. You, you need to give me a good reason why this has been happening. Pleading on the behalf of the widows. Apparently, some of the Hellenistic Jews believe that the widows among the Hebrew Jews were not being treated the same. John Stott says, It is not suggested that the oversight was deliberate. More probably, the cause was poor administration or supervision. John MacArthur, he says, In a congregation of that size, it was inevitable that someone's needs would be overlooked. Dave Guzik, who's one of our Calvary Chapel Bible school teachers, he said, check this, Satan loves to use an unintentional wrong to begin a conflict. These are the perfect conditions for a church-splitting conflict. How many of you know that there isn't anything new under the sun? We still today find ourselves dealing with the same type of issues, don't we? 
And prejudice is a big one. Well, we thank the Lord for his ever-present spirit and his powerful word because as much as this was a bad situation that could have really gone belly up, we're grateful to hear that as much as they were probably tempted to murmur and talk to everyone else about their plight, eventually the complaint comes directly to the attention of the apostles. And can I encourage you, if you've got something in your heart for someone, whether it's the person sitting next to you or the person across the aisle or the person in another church or with me or with anybody, you know, the scriptures encourage us to deal with them things quickly. And the best way to deal with them is Matthew chapter 18, where it encourages us to go to our best friend and tell them everything that this person has done to me. No, it doesn't say that. Or to go and speak to an unbeliever at work and tell them about this person in your church who claims to be a Christian. And you know what? Furthermore, I'm leaving that church because they're all hypocrites. No, it doesn't encourage us to do that. It encourages us to go to who? To the person, isn't it? You go to that brother or you go to that sister directly. And you may be angry. But what I'm, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And you know, no one ain't going to get angry with you if you're honest. And you might go with an angry attitude. But you're being honest and transparent. You might not even be able to look them in the eye. But you say, you know what, bro, I need to talk to you. Because you said something or you did something that offended me. And you know what, very often... The response will be, really? I'm so sorry. I never even realized it was either a slip of the tongue or... And look, immediately, I mean, what are you going to do when you, when, you, when you confront someone and they say, I'm so sorry? Well, you know what? I'm not taking sorry for another. No, you're not going to say that. And if you confront them, nine out of ten times, that person will, will say what? Who, who do you think you are coming up to me and asking me about... No, they're going to say, you know, nine out of ten times, the person's going to say, I'm sorry, Shh, forgive me. You know what I mean? Even if they meant to do it, which is bad, but if they meant to, you, you can resolve it, is my point. You can resolve it. And now, thank the Lord, the complaint comes directly to the attention of the apostles. They see the problem as legitimate. They don't ignore it. They see it as legitimate and they respond to this matter of neglect in regard to the daily distribution, which was a local welfare system or a benefit program. The daily distribution. The early church took its responsibility to help and support specifically widows, which really kind of needs definition, right? These are, these are ladies who, whose husbands had died. And in that culture, it's not like here, you know, you can go and get a job, or, you know what I'm saying, there's income support and so on and so forth. There was none of that. So these poor widows would end up begging because there was no one to support them. So the, the Christian church set up a welfare system, which, which apparently really is where our welfare system comes from, at least in its you know, origination, because obviously this was originally a Christian country. And it was set up in order to support these widows. But if you read First Timothy 5, you see that there was an expectation that the widows would actually also be involved with serving the church. You can read that at your leisure. Based on and funded by the charitable donations of those who had given of resources, just like we saw with Barnabas a couple of weeks ago, possibly food and clothing, but there is also a very strong argument that suggests that this speaks of handling the practical administration of the financial and practical details relevant to caring for the widows. With reference to verse 2, a table at that time meant a place where money <clears throat> was changed and collected or money was exchanged and the stewards or the deacons were elected to oversee the distribution of these monies and provisions to the needy among the fellowship and all of this took place under the the direct supervision of the apostles and we see that 
There's a group being neglected. The apostles appreciate the need. The need was valid. But the apostles were not to be those who were to personally, physically attend to those tables. They would administrate, oversee, and manage managers who would see to this ministry. This would go on to become the historical architecture for the ministry role of deacons. But up until this point, it had not, it had not yet been completely formalized and systematized. But it will be. We're talking about the early church responding to community growth. We here at South London are in a similar place regarding the need to respond to church growth. Some have asked, why, why do we need to have formal membership? Good question. The implementation of membership here will go a long way to see many issues resolved. When we know who formally is committed here at South London through membership, then we will be able to give responsibility and enforce accountability. If you're not a committed member, how can we hold you accountable? You'd be like, well, boy, I didn't sign anything. I thought you could just come and go as you like. I've opened door policy, right? Now, I'm saying, I'm making statements that have already been made by people. Like, what do you mean, what do you mean you're, 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 you're questioning why I wasn't there on Sunday morning? Okay. With that type of mentality, we ain't going anywhere as a church. Why do you think that most churches get to about this size and really don't grow anymore? In the coming weeks, I'm going to share some statistics with you with, with regard to church growth, particularly in this country. And when you realize that most, the majority of churches, about 90% of churches in this country are this size, maybe 100 people, and hardly grow more than that. Why? Because those who are in leadership can only meet the needs of a certain amount of people. And it's only when you begin to develop structures where there's not just one tier, but maybe two or three tiers of leadership that you can begin to support church growth. Because one, two, or three people can only do so much. See, with the type of thinking that says, I'm not accountable. I can kind of do what I like without anyone kind of asking me, how comes you didn't do what you said you were going to do? With that type of thinking, no one is accountable. Therefore, we cannot give anyone a position of responsibility because you can't hold them accountable. And you're hardly ever here. You're not a part of a small midweek community group. You don't give consistently or generously when it comes to time, energy, or finance. And see, we all who are members of this local community, inextricably linked to one another, whether we like it or not, God has placed us here. Scripture talks about every part contributing to the body. It's like a heart is connected to the rest of the body, connected to the bladder, connected to the stomach, connected to the, the kidneys and the... Every part of the body is connected and benefiting the other part while it is being benefited by that part. See, we all need to get to the point where we are here. 
We all need to get to the point where it's not just about Sundays, but we're linking midweek in community groups. Very often, individuals feel out of touch. Very often, individuals feel uncared for because, because all they're hoping to sustain is sustained from one meeting on a Sunday. Now, just in the same way the apostles had to respond, we, as a leadership here, need to respond to individuals who feel like, no one don't care about me. No one don't phone me. And it's not, well, you know what, it's your own fault, because if you were to make a midweek meeting, maybe somebody could, would know that there's something wrong. Because you isolate yourself, like it says in Proverbs 18.1, an individual who isolates themselves seeks their own desire and rages against all good wisdom. We're not going to point the finger and say, it's your own fault. It partially is your fault. But what we want to say is, well, you know what? Part of the reason why you're struggling is because you're disconnected. And when you're disconnected, you're not getting the nutrients that the other parts of the body want to provide for you. And guess what we ain't getting? We ain't getting the part that you're supposed to be contributing. So we all need to get to that point where we all are giving of ourselves. That's our time, our energy, and our finances. It's something we haven't talked about finances for, for, for like the six, nearly six years that we started the church. But that's something that, that, that we as a family, as a community, have to begin to talk about. We need to begin to implement the directives of biblical organized structure. I heard someone say, come on now. I mean, we're not a business. No, we're not a business. But we're about God's business. So that means we ought to function better than worldly business. In every area. True? Leaders providing responsible oversight and servants, deacons, willing to be held accountable. Verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, okay, we got a problem here. But it's not desirable that we address this problem directly. We're going to get involved in sorting it out, but the answer to the problem isn't me swapping my preaching hat to put on a blankety-blank hat. Whatever it is the need is. Right? Um, this, is what, this is what Peter is saying in response. Right? He says, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, the word there for desirable isn't the word that we now would use for the meaning of this word. The word is really agreeable. It's like, it's, it's not right that we leave our responsibility and commit to another responsibility that isn't our responsibility. It's not that they, it's not that they wouldn't serve tables, but it's that they couldn't. Because they would then be relinquishing their responsibility, be like, well, the Lord will come along and say, hey, What's going on around here with regard to the teaching of my word that I have exalted above my name? And those who are responsible are over there doing other things. You see, everybody is accountable. And Peter's not saying, you know what, that's beneath us. We're apostles. Hey, we don't do tables, we don't do sweeping. This is not what he's saying. Because how many of you know, that's where it starts for anyone in leadership. You don't get to be a leader by biblical qualification, by doing anything other than starting off by sweeping up, setting up chairs, sitting on the sound, doing children's ministry. These are things that we've talked about. So they're not relinquishing that responsibility. They're just fearful of relinquishing their responsibility. Verse 3, therefore, brethren, on that basis, 
Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, so much to say, so little time. Why seven? Well, there are about a dozen suggestions why seven. One is, it's because seven is the number of God. It's the number of completion, the number of perfection. Therefore, communicating that this idea of seven came directly from God, like a revelation to maybe someone like Peter. Another suggestion is that because the community was so huge, what they did was they broke the community up into seven assemblies. Therefore, each of these New office bearers were given responsibility over each of these seven, these new seven communities. That's another suggestion. Why seven? Another suggestion is that one of these would take responsibility every day because it was the daily ministration. That's just to mention three. We don't know why. But these were probably managers as I mentioned, as opposed to hands-on workers. Remember, we're talking about 10 to 15,000 people. Because some people will be like, huh, they had like 15,000 people in the church. They had, a, they had the, the 12 apostles and they had like seven deacons. Why do we need to have more than five deacons in a small church like ours? Well, that's because they weren't, they weren't doing the work themselves. They were managing the work. These are office bearers, servants, later on to be described more formally as deacons. Now check it. These deacons, if you like, had to be qualified. They had to be qualified. Men of, you see the three things, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. You'd be like, wow, that's some heavy qualifications. Just... (laughs) Just for such a minimal job. Well, we're going to get into talking about the criteria for leadership and eldership. But men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We see this developed later on by Paul the Apostle in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Where he says from verse 8, likewise deacons. He begins, he, talks, he begins the chapter by speaking to elders, but now he goes on to deacons. And he says, you must be reverent. Not double-tongued, not given to much wine. That doesn't mean that you can't drink, but it means you can't be overcome by drink. Right? Not greedy for money. Note that. Not greedy for money. Now, it's, it's a shame that I have to underline something like that, but you have to underline statements like that today. Not greedy for money. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, which means self-controlled, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not going to aim to exegete that portion of the text. I mention it in passing. And this was a prescription based on a much earlier response to the growth of God's community. Do you remember Exodus chapter 18? Starting at verse 13. But let me remind you that this is a reflection of what we just read in 1 Timothy. It was a prescription based on a a response to growth. Listen. Verse 13, Exodus 18. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. (laughs) Moses sat and they stood. Hey. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? I mean, 
Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Now remember, this is the church where? If you've heard Stephen, who we're going to look at next week in chapter 7, you will hear him say that this is the church in the wilderness. Because church just means assembly, right? They were called out of Egypt and they have just embarked on a new journey through the wilderness with a new leader not pharaoh but moses with new laws not egypt's but god's with a new future and it's going to be it's going to be jerusalem in the land of canaan they've got a new god and it's not amun ra it's yahweh in act six we see something similar taking place A new group of people, a big group of people called out of sin, which is synonymous to a degree with Egypt. A new group of leaders. We've got the antagonistic old school still trying to hold on to power, but whatever they do, their rule is finished. Just like Pharaoh's rule is finished. New leaders of a new group, and these new leaders are the apostles. And this group are on a new journey to the promised land, but it's not natural Jerusalem, it's what? The heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 15 of Exodus 18 says, And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and the other, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do, Moses, is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. <laughs> for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Verse 21. Moreover, you shall, hmm, here's wisdom, you shall select from all the people, notice, able, not any men, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, Check it. Remember what I told you to note in 1 Timothy? Hating covetousness. Hating it. Not just not being it. Hating it. And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter, the big stuff, they shall bring to you. But every small matter, they themselves can judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, if you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all these people will also go to their place in peace. This is going to benefit both of you. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Now these in Exodus were more like elders rather than deacons, right? But the principle is the same. Moses was dealing with a very large group of people. Moses needed help. Wisdom says many hands make light work. It will be less burdensome for you and less burdensome for the people. Robert, Ephraim, Patrick. Yes, Lord. You need help. Yes, Lord, we do. Moses was short-sighted and he couldn't see. So Jephro come to help him. Come to help him. Come to show him. The apostles were short-sighted. And they couldn't see. Not everything that was going on. They weren't 
superheroes. As much as there were miracles popping left, right, and they weren't superheroes. They couldn't see everything. So the Hellenists, they come and they tell them, you know what, guys, we've got some issues here. As a leadership here at South London, we, the leadership, we can't see everything. Please don't be tempted, as the devil will tempt you, to think that we ought to see everything. And then you have us up in your heart because we're not meeting needs that we know nothing about. And then the ones we do know about, we need the grace of God to be able to respond to those. See, Moses responds, the apostles respond, we, in similar fashion, are in the process of responding. We ask you to be patient with us. But we also ask you to, to recognize that, you know what, this is not rocket science. We need individuals to help. But we need individuals who are able to help. We need individuals that meet the criteria. And many, much of the criteria is character. It's not about whether you can preach, you know what I mean? Whether you can teach, whether you're absolutely clever and amazing administrationally. I mean, what was in the lists? That you're one man, you're one woman man. That you don't drink too much. You, you've got self-control. That your house is in order. That you're not greedy for money. All this stuff is character. And you know what? God provided able individuals for Moses. God provided able individuals for the apostles. God has and will provide for us here at South London able individuals to do this. As we grow as a community numerically... And we have grown. You might look around and think, mm, church ain't that big. Hey, if you were there for the first service at the Adventure Playground when there was 12 of us, maybe 14 of us, and 12 of us was, was all of our family and our kids. <laughs> if you were there and you're hearing that, you'd say, hey, we've grown. But I think a part of the problem is, you've probably noticed that, we grow and then we kind of dissipate. People come and then people go. But we don't grow in a substantial sense. And the things that we're talking about today are a part of the answer to that problem. As we grow as a community numerically, may the Lord also help us to grow spiritually on an ongoing basis. We need individuals who are willing. I mean, it's hard just to get past that one. Willing. We need individuals who are willing but also qualified for these roles. We need individuals who are growing spiritually in order that we can continue to sustain our growth numerically. Are you the type of person who will help shoulder the burden? Or will you contribute to being a burden? Are you the type of person who will come early, work hard, and stay late? Or do you come late and leave early. God is into community. God, God is a community. Father, Son, and Spirit. They're a community. And, and they enjoy their relationship. And they're trying to communicate something to us who they've invited into that relationship. God is... God has been, God is, and God will continue to build community. God is big on community. God is excited about community. And we need to get excited about the things that excite him. We are his community. We and him are in community. 
Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a sad place to be. In the world without God. You, God created, the world he created, and you're in it without him. Verse 13, but now, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. God doesn't want separation. He wants community. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came. And preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. We are a community. And we have a great monarchy. Jesus Christ the righteous who's king of kings and he's lord of lords. And he heads up a great and righteous government to which we need to submit to, serve under, serve in one another. Amen? There is a strong argument, as we get ready to finish, there's a strong argument for female deacons, an argument that we here at South London agree with. There's room for you ladies in the role of being a deacon. And we can talk more about that another time. But not female elders. Eldership in the Bible is male. And males who have their responsibilities underlined in verse 4. It says, but we, that is the elders, Peter, James, John, etc., but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There are roles and responsibilities in the community, in the church. And not everyone has the same responsibilities and might I add accountability. I have a greater responsibility, but hey, I've got a much greater accountability. I'm happy to take your job if you want my job. If it's okay with the Lord. What? Here's an opportunity for you to contribute to the community. What skills, what gifts, what talents do you have that we as a community could benefit from? I mean, that is based on the fact that you feel like this is a community to be a part of. Well, you need to seek the Lord as to your responsibility. Why are you here? It's a straight question because very often in churches people attend and they really don't know why they're there. We have to ask these questions. Why are we here? What is this all about? 52 Sundays out of a year is a big commitment. And that's just Sundays. Let alone if you're committed midweek. Hey, if we don't know why we're here and what we're doing... Possibly there might be something better for us to give our time to. We need to ask that question. Why are we here? Oh, sorry. You never got that part, did you? Forgive me. Well, let's end on the fact that we are a body. Different parts. The elders say, we will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. <clears throat> You know, I wish we had here 
two or three services every Sunday. I'm terrified to stand up and teach, but I love it at the same time. And I wish that we were in a place where we were now getting ready to plant another church. Why, Why aren't we planting another church in Peckham? Or over by where Raymond lives, over in Victoria, Pimlico? Or over where Palm and Frieda live, out in Red Hill? Why aren't we planting a church for Brother Michael and Sister Angela, who live all the way over in North London? And wherever you may be or where you come from, it would be the joy of my heart to see us planting churches in these different places. Shegan comes all the way from West London, like hour and a half journey. And you know, it's not that it's not God's will, but it's are we prepared to make that sacrifice? I believe that we are. I believe that God has got his hand upon us. And it will happen by God's grace, but not without structure and organization. I saw an email this week entitled, Things Are Changing Ryan right here. I don't know if you got that email. And that's exactly what we all want. Look at verse 5. And it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. People heard it and were like, Amen. Structure. Amen. What? Responsibility. Amen. What? Accountability. Amen. The people, they saw it and it, was, and it was pleasing to them. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Notice, all of those names are Hellenistic. They're all Greek names. So it seems like the apostle said, hey, you know what, we've got this problem with, the, let's, let's put individuals that you can relate to over this. So they can put their arm around you and say, come, come, all right, you got neglected, but don't worry. See, look, we're sorting things out. Don't worry. Can you see? Verse 6, whom they, set up, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Just like Moses patterned, just like the apostles will later introduce as practice, which is fundamental to Christian teaching. Hebrews chapter 6, the basic, fundamental, foundational teaching of the doctrine of Christ. Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, doctrine of baptism, laying on of hands. They laid hands on them. That's one thing that we do do, even though you may not see it. it, it we do do it. This is something that <clears throat> we are in a process of planning. That is the ordination of elders and deacons. And look at the result, verse 7. And the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Why? Because there was order. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 40 says, Let all things be done decently and in order. We're going to stop there. The text goes on. Off on a different tangent and begins to track and follow. Not the crowds or even the apostles, but one man whose name is Stephen. Through chapter 7... We see something quite unprecedented take place. And then we see another individual later on, Philip, who's highlighted. And it is said of these two sinners, let me encourage those of you who are serving already. I'd just like to say thank you. And to those of you who desire to serve, let me encourage you by saying that with regard to these two individuals, it has been said That these two sinners became believers who became disciples and that they were faithful in the pantry and in the pulpit. Very often you will see those who start off as someone obscure yet committed to faithful service become a deacon then become an elder stroke slash leader. We see this type of progression in the scripture. May we begin to see it in our community. He who is faithful over a little will also be faithful in much. Amen.